Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. In our previous episode, we talked about the first four chapters of the Book of Esther, and we dug into some really powerful topics, and we ended the episode on a cliffhanger. So today, we're going to look at chapters 5 through 10 and the ways that God intervened to take deeply traumatizing and harmful situations and make them a source of power. We'll also talk about the annual Jewish holiday that's based on the book of Esther and the meaning this story has carried for the Jewish community throughout history. Let's dig in. If you didn't listen to the first episode yet, Coming Out of Hiding, that where we talk about the first half of the book of Esther, I would encourage you to pause this episode and go back to listen to that one first, because it really does lay some important groundwork for what we'll be talking about today. So we are picking up in chapter five. So we ended with that cliffhanger of Esther saying that she was going to go ask the king for help, that she was going to risk her life to approach the king without being summoned. And that's just kind of where we left off. So it was this moment of not knowing what was going to happen. So Esther does successfully approach the king after asking for prayer and fasting from herself and Mordecai and all their people. The king finds favor with her and she invites him to a banquet. And that first night she invites the king and Haman and the king gives her an opening and he says, what do you want Queen Esther up to half the kingdom? I'll give it to you. And in the moment, she says, I'd like for you to come back for a second banquet tomorrow night. And I think there's been quite a bit of debate and I think probably misinterpretation of that passage. I'm looking at you, Veggie Tales. <laughs> but the, like, I think popular take, and again, most recently from Veggie Tales, is that she's scared or that she's timid and unwilling to make her big ask. And as I've been rereading the passage, I just think that's not at all a faithful rendering of that passage because such important things happen immediately afterwards as a result of her waiting. And so I would wager that she is actually hearing guidance from the Lord, probably in combination with her own intuition that she needs to wait, that the time's not right yet to make this ask for help. And that's really hard, but I think actually takes a lot more strength than just pausing because you're timid. I think it actually takes a lot more strength to pump the brakes when you're feeling anxious and urgent about a really dire situation to actually have to pause and wait on the Lord. And I just want to give her credit for that, that I think it's her wisdom and her dependence on the guidance of God that causes her to wait. I think that's so important, especially because one of the main points of this book is kind of this idea of like the between the lines of where God's working. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's an opportunity to see that even more. Um, And we've seen it kind of the opposite of like Esther didn't want to listen to the Lord or something like that. And I think, like you said, it's actually probably more courageous. I just think in my own life of the times where I've kind of push things ahead, even when I've known probably like, it's better to be patient right now, but that's so hard. And so, and I'm, I can get like in bulldozer mode. And so I just think Mm -hmm. about, um, the strength that that took for her, like the meekness of her to be in that place of knowing, uh, what she needed and wanted to bring to him and then kind of taking a step back. And I think that's probably, um, I just think you're so right on that, that it's more courageous perhaps to, and to trust that he's going to come back. Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that is a hard choice in that situation that she's in. I think we take that for granted that like, of course they would say yes, uh, because, you know, we see it through our own relational western lenses and we're like of course they're going to come back for dinner and it's like she's asking basically twice for the king to spend time with her in a when she was not supposed to be so I think that is really powerful yeah that's such a good point 
Right. And I do, I do agree with you, Jamie, that I think it's been easier for people to assume she's not walking in the boldness of God by seemingly hesitating and needing to take more time. And that's such a disservice. And I think such a strange negative assumption about her, where I think we're putting our own anxiety on her and we're putting our own timidity on her and reading that into the passage. I don't think we don't have any indication that that's why she's doing that. But the tricky thing is we don't have any inner like inner dialogue from her in the passage. So we don't know for sure. But as we, when we see the chain of events that happens as a result of her waiting, I think it's so clear that God guided her to wait. And yeah, like, man, it is hard for me when I'm in a place of urgency and specifically uncertainty <laughs> um, where like we're in a, a place of chaos and um, a lack of resolution and to just wait in that pause in that in between without any guarantee. And like you said, not even having a guarantee that they would come like for all she knows, this is her one chance. That is, I think, tremendous self-restraint and tremendous dependence on the Lord to say, I'm not going to be captive to fear. I'm not going to let myself act prematurely or scramble in a, a frantic way just to grasp onto something to make her feel secure or make her feel like she had done something. And also she's got all these people praying for her and she just had the King and they're all going to ask her like, okay, what happened? Did you talk to him? <laughs> and she's going to have to say to them, no, not yet. I'm, I'm going to talk to them again tomorrow night. That's hard. <laughs> I would feel that desire to like have something to report back to all these people who are invested in what's going on and who know what's going on. And so to have to say, no, keep praying. We need more time. That's, that's difficult. That is not a pleasant situation to be in. That's so funny. You said that. I feel like this time reading it through, I had like a more visual, um, experience when I was reading that part specifically, because I was thinking about, um, the women who surround her because they were also fasting with her. And so, and they're probably at least some of them in the room for this. And so I just kind of had this visual of like them being on edge and like, wonder what's going to happen during this meal. And then, you know, them kind of overhearing this, let's do it again tomorrow. And I, I just picture that being a bit anticlimactic and kind of everyone being on edge. And so I think, yeah, you're right. That, that idea of like, even not just that she was so strong in that patience, but in her confidence in the calling, like I think of those words from Mordecai of like, what if you're called for such a time as this? And I wonder about those like kind of echoing for her in that moment of like just that confidence of her calling that she mm -hmm. knows what to do and she knows how to navigate this situation um, probably even better than the people who are surrounding her. And so, um, yeah, I just think about, I wonder if those words were echoing for her as she made that decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really sweet. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but a modern example of this same type of situation of hitting the pause button when everyone around you is in overdrive. Um, so when we think of the civil rights movement in the 20th century and the leadership of Dr. King with the march from Selma to Montgomery, there's a movie about it that I highly recommend. They, the second time they tried to march, a ton of people have come into Selma. People have come in from all over the country. They've got all this support. They're on the bridge to start the march. Dr. King pauses and prays and he has everyone turn around and go back. And like after that, then a lot of people didn't come back. A lot of people left, but he just had this clear sense from the Lord of it's not safe to lead all these people out into the rural Alabama countryside and camp overnight when we don't have any protection. We don't have any support from the National Guard or the government or anything. And everyone was mad at him. And everyone was like, we had, we had to strike while the iron was hot. That was this perfect moment. We had all this support. TV cameras were there and you wasted your moment. 
But the next time they did the march a couple of days later, they had the National Guard. They had even more people who were with them. And that's such a hard moment to press pause when everyone around you is thinking it's go time and this is our moment. And I think in a maybe unexpected way, Dr. King was kind of acting in the strength of Queen Esther, that he's acting with this same dependence on God of, I need to trust God first and let God's guidance be the thing that is dictating this timing and the series of events, not just the pressure of people around me. And I think for sure, as women, we feel a lot of pressure from people around us to be what they want us to be, to be on the timeline that other people have for us. Um, and so to not be just a captive to that pressure is so difficult. And so I, I commend Dr. King and I commend Esther for being, being able to be so centered in themselves and in their connection to God's guidance, that that's the thing they're listening to, not the pressure of the people around them. Oh, that's such a good modern example. And yeah, such a clear parallel, I think. Um, and I just, I really do think like, that's one of our takeaways for this book is that part of what it looks like for us to be the people of God sometimes is to resist, um, and all the more so in our current culture, like to resist that tyranny of the urgent, um, and trust the Lord and his timing and that God really is leading us really well, that he's a better leader than we even are. Um, and I just think that's probably one of the big invitations for us in this book is to model Esther's trust in the Lord in those moments. Mm -hmm. That's so hard and so good. <laughs> oh, so good. And here's why. So let's continue in the story because this, I think, will help all of us slow down when we need to, because it's a way that we can be reminded of like, okay, here's what God can do when mm -hmm. we're willing to wait and let him keep working. So that night after her first banquet, God is very clearly in between the lines working in subtle ways. And coincidentally, no one can sleep that night. And so Haman is up. He had walked home past Mordecai, got angry about Mordecai all over again. He can't sleep. He's just stewing about how much he hates Mordecai. And he's just in a thought spiral of like, man, I hate this kid. I just want to take him down. He's so disrespectful to me, et cetera. And so he starts planning and building a gallows so that he can have Mordecai executed um, by hanging on these gallows. And so he's just like, just in this anger spiral all night. The king also can't sleep. And this is a little bit um, self-absorbed. He's like, bring me the history of me. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got, he's like scrolling through his own feed. <laughs> it's basically what he's doing. <laughs> and he's, he's getting pretty far back in his timeline. <laughs> yes. oh, I'm just cracking up because it's such a funny visual, but that's basically what he's doing. It he's is, like, <laughs> yes scrolling back through his own profile, um, looking at previous posts. Um, and he comes across by chance, wink, wink, um, the story of Mordecai foiling this plot to kill him, which he hadn't really paid attention to at the time, but it had been recorded because Esther made sure it was. And he's like, wait a second, man, that guy, that's, that guy did me a solid. Have I done anything to to honor him, I, I probably should. So the king, as he's not sleeping and just scrolling back through his history, <laughs> um, sees, oh, hey, this was a cool thing that happened with this guy that I didn't really pay attention to and didn't seem like a big deal. But in his sleeplessness and boredom, he comes across it. And so this is one of multiple, just so powerful, ironic twists. Haman at that point is coming in all angry to tell the king about his plot, his scheme to hang Mordecai. He, uh, the king sees, oh, Haman's outside. Oh, good. Yeah, perfect. I'll get his advice on how to honor Mordecai. 
<laughs> Great timing. So he invites Haman in and he says, what should the king do for someone he wishes to honor? And Haman is like, oh, he could only be talking about me. <laughs> and so Haman tells him, oh, you should throw him a parade and march him around the capital. And that's what you should do, thinking it's going to be for him. The king says, oh, great idea. Let's do that for Mordecai. And that's totally just this jaw-dropping moment for Haman of like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, what? What? <laughs> so then Haman is humiliated by having to honor his enemy, the person he was coming in to try to execute. Now he has to march him around the city <laughs> and honor him by the king's decree. And so that's just such a hilarious and again, I think subversive and um just ironic way that the Lord is using their sleeplessness, first of all, I believe causing them to not be able mm -hmm. to sleep and just creating this very intricate series of events through this additional night. And then the following day that Esther has bought that time by trusting in the Lord and waiting. Yeah. I love that because she, you know, did all the things that we just talked about, like in her bravery to hit pause, um, a story unfolded that I think she could have never expected. Um, and I just, I think, you know, we were talking a lot in the last episode, just about what a good story this is like literary. It's beautiful. And I think this is such a good example of that, of like this, how you can't make this stuff up. Like, this is so perfect. And I just think it's such a good reminder for us that God writes really good stories. And when we trust him, like he is able to knit together details that we, we never could. And so I think that trust that we see from Esther plays out in a way that's such an invitation to us, uh, as we model her trust to see the way that God puts things together that we just can't. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think this is a really sweet moment of God ministering to Mordecai as well, because if we're thinking about being in their shoes, the big thing is still looming. The big thing of their imminent annihilation of this genocide, this um, a regime ordained genocide is still there. That hasn't been impacted yet. That hasn't been changed yet. But in the meantime, there's this kind of small scale honoring of Mordecai, of God saying, hey, I saw, I saw what you did in the past. I caused that to be remembered, and I'm causing you to be honored for that. And I think that was the Lord giving him this small scale reminder of, I see you, I'm with you, I'm able to work in time and bring things together in unexpected ways. And I'm going to remind you of that on a small scale. So you'll keep trusting that I'm going to do that on a large scale. And I think that is such an important word for all of us as well, because of course there's major seasons in our lives where we have something really big that's looming, that's unresolved, that's causing us pain or just tension and fear. And it's very easy to only focus on the big thing and also to feel like as long as if the big thing is still there, it means God hasn't acted. Mm. And I think it's such a good reminder to pause and slow down and pay attention to where is God showing me that he sees me in small daily things. And it can be as simple as finding a parking space when you are <laughs> running late <laughs> or like you almost locked yourself out of your car. And then at the last moment you saw your keys and you realize like, oh, wow. Okay. Thanks Lord. Thanks for protecting me just from that stress and inconvenience when I'm already pretty overwhelmed. Um, so it can just be simple things sometimes of reminding ourselves when we're paying attention, God's still with me. God sees me. God loves me. He's guiding me. This big thing might not be finished yet. And in the meantime, God's showing me that he's, that I'm not alone, that he is with me. The way that he's going to minister to me in the small things lets me know he's going to minister to me in this big thing. I think that's so good. And just as you're talking, I'm thinking about a spiritual director that we both know who, um, 
kind of has this habit of like, in some ways under her breath, just thanking the Lord. And I've, after spending some time with her, have really tried to like incorporate that into my world of just in those moments being really grateful aloud to the Lord. And I think those are the kinds of things that tune our hearts to pay attention to those because it, it could be easy for Mordecai. I mean, it sounds like, how could you miss the attentiveness to the Lord in a parade? Mm -hmm. And also he's still trying to figure out if he's going to be alive next week. And Mm -hmm. so I think those moments of paying attention help us see what God's doing and like cultivate the gratitude for the ways that he is moving. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's also a call for us to see it as gratitude, because I think there could be a way that we would feel annoyed or resentful that God is doing small things. And the big thing isn't done yet. I'm like, God, I don't care about that. <laughs> like, I want you to get to this big thing. <laughs> um, there could be a way where Mordecai would feel like, why are we doing a parade when yeah, right. next week it's our, we're all on the chopping block. Uh, and I, that's, I think a good reminder of that is a, an expression of God's love. That's not God ignoring the big mm-hmm. thing. That's God giving us small assurances along the way because things need to happen when his time is right. And if we're trying to rush it on our timeline, then it might be much less robust. It will probably be less rich if we're trying mm-hmm. to force it rather than waiting on God. And so I think the small things in the meantime are not God like stalling for time or just trying to pacify us. (laughs) I think it is God trying to hearten us and build us up so that we can keep waiting and keep trusting until the time of the big resolution is ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. So, so we have this kind of sweet interlude that again is made possible because Esther is patient and is seeking the right timing. And in the meantime, as this has happened, as Haman's schemes are already starting to be overturned, he came in looking for permission to execute Mordecai. Instead, he ends up creating a plan for him to be honored. His family is actually observing how things are going. And his wife is throwing up the red flags in chapter six, uh, verse 13. And she goes to him and she says, um, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. That's tough to hear from your own wife. (laughs) She's not like, you got this, honey, keep going. She kind of prophesies and is just like, bro, this is, this is a red flag. You're not going to, you're not going to win this one. And I, if I was him, I would be pretty struck by that. And I love that she brings it back to, it's not like something about Mordecai or his character or anything like that. It's, I know the way that I've, I've heard about how Yahweh protects his people. And so I'm going to tell you if he is Jewish, like you don't stand a chance. Cause I've heard about how God protects the Jews. And I think that's something very significant about like she's not appealing to anything even about Mordecai's character though we know that that's upright um but the fact that like God upholds his covenant to the Jewish people and you do not stand a chance against that and I think that's really beautiful that like God's reputation speaks for himself Mm -hmm. yeah that's so good And this was, this is just a small thing, but Jamie, you and I both read this independently and we both thought about Pilate's wife in the gospels who Mm -hmm. has a dream and a premonition of like, you shouldn't be part of this. This isn't going to end well with the crucifixion of Jesus. And I just think this is really interesting of God kind of revealing truth to these wives of these major Mm -hmm. political leaders. Yeah, I think it's kind of a fun thread to see the way that God, because again, it's like that kind of flies in the face of like some of the current church, like submissive wives narrative Mm -hmm. of like, just 
support your husband and respect all of his choices, whether they're good or not. And it's like, um, actually what is included in scripture are really important moments with the wives of leaders who are saying, I don't think this is a good idea. And, um, and so I think we're to take from that, that the Lord is doing something in those moments. And these men are not wise to listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Okay. So, uh, the narrative moves on in chapter seven and eight. So the second banquet happens, Esther knows this is the time. And so she confronts Haman in front of the king. Like she names this plot that Haman has to the king and says like, here's this plot that's happening. And in kind of dramatic delivery, she's like, and it's your sir and Haman who's doing it. (laughs) Um, And the king is like, what? So the king is furious. He storms out in a rage to sort of gather his thoughts in that short interval where the king has gone out into the courtyard to cool down. (laughs) Um, Haman is trying to beg Esther for mercy and forgiveness. He, the king walks back in just as Haman happens to be falling on Esther's couch near her in a way that the king perceives to be some kind of attempted sexual assault. And so the king is like, are you kidding me? And the king immediately has Haman hauled out and is hung on the very gallows that Haman had planned and built for Mordecai. And so it's just this, again, just dramatic timing that is clearly the Lord, that all of these things are happening in a very specific immediate time frame where it's all just coming together in the right way for the protection of his people. And yeah, I think there's just so many interesting things going on of God reversing again, what they had intended for their own gain and their own evil and power, and that God is using it against them to foil their schemes against his people. I love that. And I just think about, um, honestly, the fact that Haman is appealing to Esther at all is intriguing to me in and of itself that like he, again, like he's the one who was trying to stop, um, in chapter one, like if people know that women have power, this could really mess things up for us. And now all of a sudden here he is back, um, appealing to Esther, trying to beg her for forgiveness, um, which also forces him to acknowledge her power, which I think is very lovely in a very subversive way. Yeah. That's super interesting that he's kind of unintentionally yeah honoring her authority right and her power over him mm-hmm. yeah that's so fascinating and so as we continue in chapter eight uh what happens is the king says i can't reverse any of his decrees he can't um yeah he can't revoke them but he can send out new decrees so he essentially gives esther and mordecai a blank check of write whatever you want you have my literal seal of approval, the signet ring mm-hmm. seal, and you can just send it out. And that's how we'll approach the situation. So Mordecai's like, say less. <laughs> <laughs> he writes a decree that the Jewish people have the authority to defend themselves against this specific day of attack that Haman had been planning. And so Mordecai writes this decree, giving everyone this permission. And in chapter eight, verse nine, just to give us a picture of how big the the Persian empire is and how wide the Jewish diaspora was, it says this, this decree is sent to provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. So Mordecai is sending this far and wide. That's a huge empire that is being notified of this 
situation in this day. And I appreciate that Mordecai is making sure it's in every language. So it's in every regional dialect and it's all written in Hebrew as well. So that every non-Jewish person can read it and see this is a new decree from the king about this day of genocide that now the people are going to be able to defend themselves and that all the Jewish people can also read it in their own language, which I think is such a sweet reminder of this is who we are and we are powerful in our identity that we're not only assimilating, we're not only able to read it in the language of the province that we're in, it's being sent to us in our language as well. And to me, it is this moment of power and of shared identity and shared protection. I'm so glad you brought up that first because I just, again, like, I think it's important. I don't think we picture this like Old Testament being in India. And so I think for Mm -hmm. us to kind of correctly place how wide the reach is even here of like, this is important that God protects his people as far and as wide as they go. And so I think that's really important because it, it just shows the blueprint of God moving around the world um, and that he will be a part of expanding his reach, even when like they're a diaspora in a, like out of a not good thing. And yet God is using that to kind of paint this picture of the way that he moves in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So good. Uh, and so I want to read a little bit just of what the decree is allowing them to do this new decree. So we're still in chapter eight. I'm going to read verses 11 through 13. So this is what has been delivered to all of every province, every province of 127 saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed, to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So I want to point out this ends up being a little bit of a bloodbath for sure. Um, And I think we often ignore these last chapters. And I think we'll keep talking about this as we go um, because maybe it is a little uncomfortable and not so kid friendly that thousands of people are killed by the Jewish people on this day. I think it's very important before we even get to the vengeance part to note that this is self-defense. They are, they have permission to attack anyone to defend themselves against anyone who attacks them. It says any armed forces that attack them. So this is not just a green light for them to just randomly kill the people in their community. Um, If, if no one had come against them, no one would have died. And I also think this is very indicative of how God's judgment happens in the old Testament that I don't think we pay enough attention to. We see God as like this wrathful God, who's always lashing out and killing people randomly. That's how we interpret it. And it actually is always very structured. And there is always an opportunity to avoid punishment before God does it. Often there's hundreds of years of opportunities to avoid punishment (laughs) before God actually acts. And so I, I want us to note this the, of God's justice. I think God's justice is very clear in the way that Mordecai is, is acting in the power of God and in the justice of God, that this is not arbitrary violence. This isn't just a chance to just like take advantage of your neighbors and just steal from them. This is a chance to defend themselves against anyone who would come against them. And if no one came against them, no one would have been hurt. And I, I think we really need to note that God isn't just arbitrarily acting in violence, that it is always after there was a chance for people to avoid that punishment who chose not to. That's so good. And I just think it's so interesting because this is in every language. And so, yeah, like, and this is from the king. 
So it's not like people were ignoring it. I guess they were just testing like the Jews. Will you really actually live into this or something? But to me, it's so interesting that everyone knows that this was sent out and yet they still choose to attack. So I just think, yeah, it's important to draw that out. And it kind of puts an exclamation point on like, no one was forcing you to still attack the Jews. Exactly. And it says in 13, this was publicly displayed to all people. <laughs> so it's not this like secret second mm-hmm. decree that no one knows about. And then it's a surprise attack. It's like, it's a warning. It's a public warning. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to your point, Jamie, that they're just like, whatevs, we can still take them, I guess. Like, I don't know what their, what their motivation would have been at that point, but they still, they still tried and they still failed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So one other, a couple other things I want to point out in chapter eight, at the end of chapter eight, verses 15 through 17, I think are just really powerful. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king after he's written these decrees in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa, so the the capital city, shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. I think that's so beautiful. I'm going to read that again, verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now I'm going to read part of verse one in chapter nine, because I think it really encapsulates this whole book. When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And I think that that one phrase in many ways sums up this book, the reverse occurred. That all of the ways that people's evil schemes against the people of God and against God himself were plotted and planned all of those things were very dramatically and powerfully reversed back onto them. And that to me does just summarize what God is doing in the book of Esther. The way that he's protecting his people is through taking what others intended for evil and using it for good for his people instead. It's so beautiful. Even just thinking about what their experience would have been like of trying to kind of get by and almost make sure people didn't know they were Jews and then to have that reversed and have this celebration. And I just think about verse 16 that you read had light and gladness and joy and honor. And like that, that's really what God desires for his people that, um, that there would be a lightness to that. And I, I think that's really beautiful uh, to think about. And personally, I love the way that that's, that reversal is reflected specifically for Mordecai that, um, there's so many things about that, but really one of the things that I've loved about him, even as we think about him kind of as this picture of what it looks like to be, um, this wonderful male figure in scripture is that, he had no idea what could have come on the other side of this. And he, in some ways, found himself in this place of power um, and honor because he affirmed Esther's calling. And so I've just always wondered, like, um, how many men are, like, kind of wondering what their calling is. And I wonder sometimes if, they would find it when they encouraged the calling of another woman that Mordecai could have never known that he would end up in this royal place um, without encouraging Esther's calling to go to the king. And so I've just always thought about like, man, I wonder how many people are sitting there, you know, taking their next calling test and like kind of trying Mm -hmm. to sort these things out when they would find it when they encourage the calling of a woman and that that might be the thing that opens 
things up for them. And I think that's such a beautiful takeaway in the story of Mordecai. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful, Jamie. That's amazing. And I think is that's the created mutuality that Mm -hmm. men and women are supposed to experience. And also that's not just husbands and wives. When we think about like created order, when we think about Adam and Eve, I think it's definitely true for husbands and wives, but I think it can be true for men and women more broadly in the community of faith that when we are seeking each other's calling, we're seeking the will of God and we are seeking the heart of God. And that can only result in goodness for Mm -hmm. everyone involved, because I think that's when we stop seeking our own self-interest. Yes. I think that's the big shift is when we make relationships between men and women as specifically power dynamics competitive and it's either you or me and I want it to be me so it's not you (laughs) Um, then that is self-seeking that's not Christ-seeking and then our communities are harmed by that too because again we're seeking ourselves and our own power and the the maintenance of our own power rather than the mutuality of what is the will of God for the people around me and how am I actively investing in that and participating in that and that results in goodness and thriving for everyone which is God's design (laughs) that when we're seeking his heart his heart is for the community of faith is for the body of his people so I think that's such a beautiful example I think that's a really powerful observation that when we shift away from being self-seeking and our kingdom seeking, that involves affirming the calling of other people. And that can actually also have really positive ripple effects for us discovering our own calling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause he's not doing that in like a schmoozy way with Esther. He's <laughs> uh-huh. not like do this, go to the King and then we'll all benefit. It's just like, listen, I've got to tell you, I see something that you are called for such a time as this. And he's just really focused on encouraging Esther. Um, and it's, yeah, like you said, just so not self-seeking. And I think, um, honestly, I think that's really hard for us to imagine in some ways in our current culture. And I think, um, really points to like an invitation for us of what does it look like to kind of return to that way of just no benefit to me. And yet, in the economy of the Lord, there's always like kind of that turnaround. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. And that also involves trust. That involves trusting if I'm willing to give power away, if I'm willing to give just my time and support to other people, that that doesn't mean I'm going to be left with nothing, that the Lord is my provider at all times. And that God's not going to abandon me in a place of scarcity, but that as I'm willing to move in faith, that God has good things for other people. And I can be part of that, that God, that's going to be true for me as well. And Mm -hmm. that I can trust that we won't be left empty handed. And we have to be careful because that can then become a means to an end of, okay, Mm -hmm. well, I'll invest in other people because then God will reward me. (laughs) I don't think, I don't think that's what we're saying. That's not a formula to success. Um, I think it's it's an act of trust. It's an act of faith of God is a God of abundance. God is a God of mutuality and relationship. And when I'm willing to rejoice with other people, rejoice in their opportunities, rejoice in their successes, that that can be something that the Lord will also bring provision into my life when the time is right for me as well. So good. And I just think in all the ways that we see this reversal happen, um, I love that Mordecai gets to be kind of side by side with Esther as they're moving forward into this like kind of next season of leadership at, as the book closes. Um, Cause I just think about Esther coming into this really vulnerable as an orphan, kind of having this family member who's looking out for her and that, um, she ends up being really surrounded in the midst Mm -hmm. of this. And so that even, I just think if you think about any detail of Esther's life, that was 
put her in a vulnerable place um, in the beginning of this book. By the end of it, you see the Lord really turning those things around. And I think it's so fun to think about. It's it's literally every aspect of her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That she starts as being functionally, like you said, an orphan, that she starts as being a sex slave. By the mm-hmm. end, when even a perception of assault is is there, that results in execution. That the king is so protective of her to defend her autonomy and her just yeah her body that there's deep defense of her by the end um and that as we saw that it was a huge liability to be jewish for them now at the end it's actually an asset and other people are clamoring to be jewish <laughs> to like identify like, with oh, me too me too yeah <laughs> same <laughs> Um, but yeah, other people want to be part of that for Mordecai. It was a huge risk to openly worship God and to refuse Mm -hmm. to worship no others. And then it's because of his worship of God that they are defended and feared rightly. So because the fear of the Lord, um, has struck the people of, Mm -hmm. of Persia. Um, and obviously this reversal of what was meant to be a day of genocide and annihilation becomes a great day of power and self-defense and of future protection that then Mm -hmm. other people are going to know not to mess with the Jews because their God isn't going to put up with that and their God's going to find a way to protect them. So it is just such a tremendous expression of God's power. And like we said in the last episode, we don't see God overtly mentioned. We don't see them saying, and then God did this. And then the Lord told us to do this, etc." But as you spend time in the book, it's just supernatural. There's just no way that all of these coincidences, all of these ironic twists of fate are happening on their own. It's so obvious that it's the hand of God alone that's doing this. And that, like you said, other people realize, including the villain's wife mm-hmm. <laughs> that like, whoa, these people are different. They have a different kind of protection from their God than anybody else does. And so it can just be such a, a moving and profound book during seasons, like we said, where we may be feeling God is distant, where we may be feeling like there's some big things that God doesn't seem to be resolving yet. God doesn't seem to be taking those things away yet. And this can be such a good book to be rooted in during those seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the things that God wants, like, I think God wants us to be rehearsing this story often um, because the Jewish people end up making this a national holiday. Um, And so I think, again, like we've talked about this book kind of gets buried and you pull it out maybe every once in a while for like a women's Bible study, but for the Jewish people, this was supposed to be an annual celebration for them to remember that way that God protects his people and he will fight for them. And so, um, and I love to, I think it's important for us to note, there's a lot of things that happen in scripture that kind of, there are feast days that are no longer practiced. Um, we even, when we saw Holda's role, we saw her kind of being a part of reinstating Passover, which for us, I think, um, we see that as how could you ever stop and like, forget to practice Passover? That's Mm -hmm. so important. Um, but this is a holiday that is still celebrated and still one of the important Jewish holidays, I think. And so, um, we, I think that's so beautiful that we, miss um if you're not surrounded by that and I just think there's so many things that are really powerful about the fact that this continues to be a really significant story in the narrative of the Jewish people exactly and actually I'll read it real quick in chapter 9 verses 20 through 32 are all about them making this event and they call it Purim Um, a national holiday. I'll just read a few verses. So I'll read 20 through 22. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month 
of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. So it's a two day holiday as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So it is, yeah, such a beautiful recognition on their part of this is what God has done for us. And we want to make sure that we are celebrating that and commemorating that for forever <laughs> for, mm-hmm. let's, in, in perpetuity, that this mm-hmm. is now going to be a major holiday in their calendar because of what God has done. And I want to tell one story about how this is played out. And then Jamie, I, I want you to also keep talking about how Purim is still celebrated today. But um, when we think about World War II, and obviously the Jews were in a similar situation, that the Jewish diaspora across Europe was deeply threatened by the Nazi regime and that their lives were hanging by a thread and were so many were lost during that time. And the book of Esther was actually forbidden in the concentration camps. They weren't allowed to read it for obvious reasons. <laughs> the Nazis were, you know, they understood, they knew what it would mean for the Jews to read this story and remind themselves of this truth. The funny thing is a lot of them, a lot of the Jewish people just had it memorized. And so they would recite it to each other in secret in the Nazi concentration camps. And it makes me emotional every time I think about this, um, that they were reminding each other, we've been here before. We've been on the brink of extinction before. We've had major superpowers and regimes try to rise up and wipe us out and they've never succeeded. And even though we may not all make it out of here, even though it may not all go away right now, we know God has spared us before and he'll do it again. He'll find a way to allow us to continue. And I think that's deeply powerful. I just can't even, again, just makes me so emotional thinking about that. And I think we do such a disservice to the Jewish community and their shared history when we reduce the power of this book to a to only being a women's Bible study. And we lose the tremendous encouragement and just truth and anchor that this would have been for Jews in the concentration camps for years, that they're reciting this book to each other. And they're saying, God will protect us. He's protected us before and he'll do it again. Such a beautiful story. And I think so much of the way that we Jewish people celebrate this holiday is the celebration of God being victorious over the oppressor. Um, And so of course they need to keep reminding each other of that in a moment of oppression. Um, But I just think we miss that so much in our understanding of our history that we've been grafted into this story now. And so we, um, I just think there's so many ways that scripture points to kind of this mockery of the oppressor who actually thinks that they do have power over God. And so we've seen that in Exodus, we've seen that in so many of these songs that women write, um, in the face of victory over oppression is kind of this mocking, almost like a sing song way of seeing how silly it is that an oppressor would try to think that they can overpower God. And I think we see that in this story too, that there's so much of like that mockery of the enemy um, of like, oh, you're going to get hung on the exact gallows that you made for someone else. And um, even part of the current way that the Jewish people celebrate is with these cookies that are shaped like triangles um, because that would have been the shape of Haman's hat. And so mm-hmm. the, um, the name of the cookie is translated Haman's hat cookies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of this just even woven into the way that they feast is a mockery of the enemy. And I just think we could take so much from that to 
join in that understanding of who God is, that it's in his nature that he is the one who is victorious over oppressors, that he moves on behalf of his people to liberate and bring justice. And that we miss so much of God's character when we miss out on those pieces of God's story. Um, and so I think it's so important for us to join in that celebration. Um, and I think just one other detail that I've always loved hearing about, about the way that they celebrate is that oftentimes there's costumes involved and kind of masking. Um, so like beautiful masks, I think a modern, um, kind of illustration would be like Mardi Gras masks. Um, and so, but there's this picture of like, God may be masked in this story because he's not named, but he's there. And so I love the way that they kind of play dress up to point to that part of the story that of course God is there, but um, as a way of kind of celebrating that fact that he is kind of between the lines, um, they include it in their kind of costume uh, for the celebration. And so I just love this way of celebrating um, that it points so much to the way that God is the one who brings justice, that he is the one who is the liberator that brings freedom. And I think that's so important for us. And we just, you know, we keep pointing to the ways that this has kind of been diluted as a story. And I think that's why it's so important for us to kind of bring back some of that uh, depth and dimension to this story, because we miss out on God's nature and God's character in the midst of it. Yeah, that's so good. Right. When I would think if you were to ask me, what are the most powerful stories of liberation in the Bible? Esther would not be at the top of anyone's list that would come to mind. And mm -hmm. that's a travesty. You know, I think I would think of Exodus and then obviously I would think of the gospels and like the book of Acts, perhaps I, I would not think of Esther right away, but we should. It is this, to your point, Jamie, a beautiful picture of God's intervention, of God seeing his people and keeping track of them and of liberation, of God liberating and honoring his people in the face of tremendous threat and dishonor. And that's so powerful. And I think can be such an ongoing encouragement for any people groups or just areas of the world where Christians are just continuing to feel that, that type of threat and oppression and of having to be in hiding and of how much this book can still speak a good word of protection and coming liberation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think to me, it's so powerful that the Nazis were so um, kind of outward in their understanding of this. And it just kind of makes me ask that question of like, I, maybe it wasn't as intentional that the story has been diluted and removed from our common conversations in the church but it it makes me ask the question of why like what was so scary um to the powers that be and some of those are just principalities and spiritual powers but like what is it that has made this book feel so scary that we better make sure that we uh kind of undermine the power of it and I think that's a good question for us to wrestle with of why we don't sit with this enough mm -hmm. right because I think it's for a lot of reasons I think mm -hmm. it's certainly around fear of what can happen when women feel their authority and exercise their authority when people who are experiencing oppression and colonization recognize their power and image bearing. I mean, that's, that should be pretty sobering for us mm -hmm. to think about exactly your question of why don't we spend more time in the complexity of this book? And what does that say about us that we mm -hmm. would rather dilute it and reduce it? I'm so glad we took two weeks to talk about <laughs> this book. And I hope that this is a step towards honoring and honoring this book and the stories of Esther and Mordecai, and more importantly, honoring the Lord and his 
history with his people and his ability to always protect and intervene and perpetuate us forward. And so we hope that this has been an encouraging word for you. We hope it's given you important things to think about and ways to come back to the Lord during seasons of struggle, of pain, of silence, of feeling oppression, that God is with us in those places and in those seasons, and that God will continue to lead us out. So we hope that this book also gives us an encouragement to wait, uh, and not to wait in idleness, but to wait in hope that God is with us in the small things, even as he's working out the really big things in our lives. So we thank you so much for joining us. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Leave us a rating and review if you're able to. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So reach out on social media or through the Anchor website if you'd like to connect with us. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for digging in.